Mr. President, thank you for the opportunity of coming here to be a part of this time of worship in your chapel to all your faculty and staff, students, and, and friends of the seminary. It's a joy for me to be here, an honor for me to share with you uh, this morning. This is a very, really a sacred place for Southern Baptists and an important place for me. This is where my mother and father met. Both my parents attended this seminary and were married here while they were students here and uh, then went on to a long ministry and a beautiful, wonderful life together. My father has since passed. My mother is still uh, going strong at the, the age, the young age of 88 years old, teaching Sunday school every, every Sunday. In fact, uh, Sunday afternoons, if I call her, I'll say, Mother, what are you doing? She says, I'm getting ready for next Sunday. And every time I talk to her, just about every time I call her, she'll say something. Let me tell you what the Word of God said to me this morning. Let me tell you what God promises those who are faithful to him. I mean, can you imagine living a life that loves the Lord with all your heart? No matter what the circumstances are, we are dedicated to him and then finishing well. That's what we want to do is finish well. So on behalf of really the 1.6 million Georgians that go to a Georgia Baptist church, they don't all go on the same Sunday. Some haven't been in a while, I'll tell you that. And uh, that, that 3,550 churches, that number changes quite often. I just want to say to you as students uh, that we support you. Uh, we support you with our prayers. We support you financially. In fact, this morning I just received a text from uh, our COO. He said we just sent out $3.245 million to the executive committee this month to help reach the world with the gospel. That's what we do. That's what we desire. That is a driving passion for Georgia Baptist and uh, we support you also by just saying we want to cheer you on. We want to celebrate what God's doing. It, it's so, I guess it's just a, a very encouraging uh, statement for me to share with every church that I preach in every Sunday to tell them that there are almost, or actually actually over, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. President, over 20,000 young people are preparing for ministry right now in one of our seminaries. That's an army, isn't it? Amen? And we need more and more. And so we're doing so many things to call out the called and to encourage and equip and to train. And uh, it's a blessing to serve in the capacity that I do. As you read those different places I served, it felt like I struggled keeping a job, but uh, the Lord continued to open up more opportunities. And I will tell you this, just as a way of, of just thinking through and processing your life, every place you go prepares you for the next place God sends you. Uh, get the most out of it. In fact, in this time, my encouragement simply to you would be don't just pass tests and don't just pass courses. Learn the material because everything that you learn now will be used in a great way by God in the days ahead. This is not just let me get my degree so I can go out now and do what God's called me to. This is devote yourself to this time of your life to learn more and more about the God who loves you, created you, saved you, and has called you to this. So today I want to share with you, um, I hope it's a practical message. I was thinking as uh, I was preparing for this, what were some messages when I was in seminary that impacted me? And it was only a few years ago I was in seminary, and I was able to remember some messages that were practical, that were also challenging and convicting, and really would would spur me on to a greater life of conviction of, and faithfulness, conviction of how I should live my life and faithfulness to the Lord in every aspect of my life. And so I'm going to share with you
from the, uh, the book of Acts, and I'll begin reading in chapter 3, if you want to turn with me there, Acts chapter 3. In uh, 1961, President John F. Kennedy fulfilled a campaign promise uh, to start an independent agency that would be supported by the government that was called the Peace Corps. Individuals would give of their time and their labor freely for up to two years or beyond, two years or beyond. And they would be helping third world countries with areas like medicine, education, disaster rescue, and, and all types of things where they were underdeveloped. Hundreds of thousands of young people responded to the call. It was an incredible success, and the impact was really impossible to measure. And the elaborate uh, enlistment campaign that the PR firm created was simply this. This is what they, state, they stated. The Peace Corps, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. I believe that those people who created that, that byline had no idea about the ministry because the ministry really, truly is the toughest job you will ever love. I mean, there are great days of reward. There are great days of positive uh, incredible, encouraging news and, and advancement of the kingdom and so on and so forth. But every step we take is difficult. It is, it's hard. And the reason it's hard is because we all who are working for Christ and serving the Lord and building the kingdom have our three enemies that are constantly warring against us. And we know those being the, the world, the flesh, and the, the devil. They, they never become weary as they attack us. They pursue us with all that they have. There are other things that make the ministry hard, whether you're called to be a pastor or some type of ministry leader or whatever you may do in the mission field or a church plant or whatever it is you're called to. There are just unrealistic expectations out there in ministry. I mean, there are, there are things that people expect from their pastor and it goes from generation. The next generation has a whole different group of expectations and, and thoughts and ideas. But there's not just the expectations from the church, there are apathetic and carnal churches, and you're trying to lead an apathetic church to reach a lost community, it becomes extremely hard. My father often referred to the ministry as the pull. In other words, you weren't going to push Southern Baptists anywhere. If you wanted to lead them, you had to, it almost felt like you were pulling them to come with you or with him. As we think about the text that we're about to read. I'm gonna share with you something that I heard several years ago and I, I thought it would be very humorous, but I actually, I actually think it's, to be, it's very true. Uh, the statement that I heard was this. You could divide the entire world, the entire population of the world into three groups. And those three groups are simply this. The first group are those people who make things happen. The second group are those who watch things happen. And when you're in the ministry, you're gonna find there's a lot of people who are watching you do stuff. And then the third group are those who ask, what happened? In fact, when we read our text this morning, you're going to see all three of those people, those people groups represented. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Let's read together, verse 1. It says this, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who enter the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. 
Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray together as we prepare for this. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. Uh, Lord, we, pr we just pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts through your word. God, that you would uh, reveal to us ways in which we could live and serve and minister that would bring honor and glory to your name. But we also pray that you would reveal to us ways that we are resistant to your spirit or holding back from giving all. And I pray that our hearts would be so yielded to you that you would you would consume us and that we would pursue you above everything. In Christ we pray, amen. So just a moment of, of context as we jump uh, into this text. Uh, what's happening right here in Acts chapter three is a, a daily occurrence. And that daily occurrence was prayer time. Now we have Peter and John going together. And of course, Peter and John were, were often together. They were fishing buddies and they they were also the inner circle with Peter, James, and John. And, of course, Peter and John were two of the three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. So them going together uh, to pray was probably something that they did often together. But they did it every day. Now, also remember this, that the, the church has now been birthed. It's now born. Uh, there are thousands of people that have just given their lives to Christ. In chapter 2, we have Pentecost we have 3,000 that were saved and baptized. We have now the reality in Acts chapter 2 that people were being added to the church daily, those who were being saved. So it's growing and growing and growing. While there's a spiritual church, there's not a physical building for them to meet in. So they continue to do what they have always done. They go to the, the temple. They go there to pray three times a day. And as it says in our text that this was the ninth hour, the <clears throat> three o'clock in the afternoon, the third hour of prayer, and they're going into what's called the beautiful gate. The beautiful gate was 75 feet high, 60 feet wide. Think about that for just a moment. Over 70 floors, <laughs> this gate, covered in, covered in, in bronze and, and gold-plated. It took 20 men to open it and close it every morning and every night. And so right there you have this beautiful entrance into the temple, at obviously the presence of God. And on the outside you see what was taken every day, and that would be what was unaffectionately known as beggar's row. That was where the beggars were placed at all of the gates of the temple as people would enter there. You might find some that would have compassion. You might find some that had already been preparing something for those people that were in need. But there you have the blind, the sick, the lame, and on and on, those that are begging. And the irony of them outside of the temple gate all of humanity that's broken. And so now we have Peter and John going together. And let's look together now at verse 3. It says there that the lame man sees Peter and John, and they're about to go into the temple, so he asked for alms. Now, please understand that he wasn't asking them in a very polite manner. You understand that when you're on a 
in a row of beggars, you're competing with the one sitting next to you. This was chaotic. This was loud. This was, this was something that was overwhelming. And so now this man is asking Peter and John for alms. And the scripture tells us in verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. The reason why he's telling him to look at him is because of the fact that the, the, the lame man has obviously seen Peter and John and he's looking now for the next person that he might be able to ask for some type of, some type of help, whether it's food or money, something. And now he is completely unaware that Peter and John have stopped. And so the first thing I want you to see here is what's happened to Peter and John. Uh, the first thing we see here is that the scripture says that they fixed their, his eyes on him or fixing his eyes on him with John. Now, this term, fixing his eyes, is an incredible term. It's actually the same term used uh, in, the, in the gospels when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and he was reading. And as he closed the book and handed it over to the attendant and went and sat down, the scripture says that every eye was fixed on him. In other words, the people could not take their eyes off of Jesus because of what they just heard. When you think about this fixing his eyes on him, it really speaks more than just seeing something. Uh, Peter has been arrested by the sight. He, he can't look away. He is now locked in. It's interesting that he now has his eyes locked in, but why? I mean, if, if what we read here tells us that the, ma the lame man has been placed at the gate of the temple every day of his life, and if we know because of tradition that Peter and John went to pray every day, three times a day possibly, uh, then you know that Peter has walked by him and John has walked by this lame man. You also know that this lame man was known because later in our text, they recognized him and said, oh, wait a minute, that's the lame man who's always outside the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. So th this person was known, Peter has walked past him. What's different today? What's different now about Peter than in weeks before? Well, you know, in the latter part of the Gospel of John, we know where Jesus gathered his disciples together and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We also know that in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, and now we have the Holy Spirit coming and then living inside of people. Peter preaches now, empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. Thousands are saved. And now Peter is seeing his, eye, his world with brand new eyes. And he's hearing his world with a brand new set of ears. He's now empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus sent the, sent the helper, so that his followers, his believers, would be united by the Holy Spirit, enabled and dwelt, empowered by the Holy Spirit to what? To work together to fulfill what Jesus started while he was here on the earth. And so now Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, sees this man and his situation. I will tell you as a pastor, as a ministry leader, as a person who's serving the Lord, one of the most difficult things that you're going to experience day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year is to be a visionary leader. Now, when I say visionary leader, you might be thinking about those people who have grandiose ideas, and they're the ones that are able to see buildings in cornfields and, and on and on. That's not what I'm talking about here. Those people are gifted and important. They do great things. I'm talking about the type of vision that's guided by the Holy Spirit. Those people that see things 
and they see things through, really, through the help and aid, enablement of the Holy Spirit. When you think about Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, he said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit living in us not only enables us to do things beyond our ability, the Holy Spirit also speaks to us. We know in Acts chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip and said, overtake the chariot. And on and on we can look at Scripture where the Spirit of God spoke and led and enabled people to see what they could not have seen with human eyes. And I'm going to tell you something, pastor, church leader, ministry leader, whatever it is you're called to do, you must pursue God and pray for every day, Lord, Send out laborers into the field. Send me out. And Lord, help me to see what you see. Help me to see a lost world that's desperately in need, of, in need of you. You say, Thomas, why is it difficult for a person to continue to see the world through spiritual eyes? And I will tell you because of expectations that will be placed upon you. I said that earlier. But just a, a little while ago, I wrote down, just real quickly, just started typing out some of the expectations that will be on those that are ministry leaders. This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but it just gives you a, a feel for what's coming. I, I think for every pastor, leader, there's the expectation that you will be a great theologian. I mean, it just makes sense. You need to be able to teach people about God. You need to be a great teacher, great preacher, a great trainer. I mean, you, you're the one who is equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. You have to be a vision caster. You have to be also a fundraiser. You know that you are the fundraiser for the ministry. You have to be a spiritual mentor, administrator, staff supervisor, headhunter. I mean, you gotta find staff somewhere counselor, conflict mediator, promoter, strategic developer, logistics engineer, community organizer, social media expert, event coordinator, financial manager, budget developer, activities coordinator. Anybody getting tired yet? Branding consultant, prayer mobilizer, brotherhood breakfast cook. Can I get an amen, Mr. President, on that? VBS disciplinarian, student camp bus driver, marriage coach, disciple maker, and the list goes on and on, and then it ends with pastor. I mean, who's got time to win the world with all of this? And so we will always face the battle of looking at our world with spiritual eyes or just continuing to look inward and oiling the machine of the church or ministry that we lead. My prayer for you is that you constantly pursue God in such a way that he gives you a clear picture of what he's doing, where he's working, and where he is leading you. The next thing I want you to see is found also in verse 4. Once again, the layman has Asked for some help. He's looked away. Peter and John have their eyes fixed on him. And now Peter is trying to get his attention. And this is how he does it. He says, hey, hey, over here, over here. Now, remember, he's trying to yell above the crowd, over here, look at us. <laughs> what an interesting thing to say. Look at us. 
Now, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe at this moment, Peter already knows what he's going to do. I mean, Peter already knows that he doesn't have any money, and he knows that's what the lame man's asking for. And whenever someone's asking for money and you say, hey, over here, look at me, that person, understandably, is going to think that you are going to give them money. That verse, silver and gold I do not have, that statement that Peter made to the lame man uh, it was not made in jest. It was not made in any way, a, a flippant way. He actually didn't have, you go back to Acts chapter 2, you'll see where uh, the, the great Pentecost day has happened. Thousands are saved. Many of them lived all around or far away, and they were staying now in Jerusalem, and they were without food and shelter, and they needed, and there were so many needs, and so persecution was taking place as well. And so what they did was they took all of their money and put it in the pot for the common good. And so now Peter and John both had just emptied out their pockets and they're walking now to pray. And so they says, silver and gold I do not have. That's a verse I heard often from my father when I would ask him as a boy growing up, can I have a few dollars? And my dad would always quote that verse, silver and gold I do not have. But I want you to know this. Uh, Peter was not without sustenance. He was not without help. In fact, Peter had something far greater than silver and gold. In fact, what Peter offers him is something that the lame man would never even dream of asking for. This is beyond his ability to reason, speaking of the lame man. And I believe Peter was going to heal him. I believe Peter already knew, I'm going to tell this man, I'm going to give this man Jesus. Look at us. <laughs> what a Sobering statement to tell someone, isn't it? I mean, when you see somebody in need, maybe this week, and you go to them and you say, hey, I want you to look at me. You know what you're saying? You're saying, I'm about to get engaged. I'm about to get involved with you in this mess that you're in or this trouble that you're going through or this situation that you're battling. You know, in ministry, it, it's easier to preach about it than it is to get involved with it. Hey, it's even easier to lead a church to write a check for the cooperative program than it is to go yourself. I can tell you right now, I have churches all over Georgia that are writing checks to send missionaries around the world and they haven't gone across the street to reach anyone in years. And those churches will die. In ministry, we have to have a balance and seeing the needs through spiritual eyes and then having a willingness to get engaged, to get involved. And I will promise you this, when you tell the, when you tell the lost world to look at us, here's what Peter and John didn't want them to see. Peter didn't want the lame man to see Peter. He wanted the lame man to see Jesus. And when we tell the world, hey, listen, are you going through trouble with your marriage? Look to us, the body of Christ. Struggling with your kids? Look to us. Having trouble with drugs and alcohol? Look to us. Trouble with anxiety or worry or fear? Look to us. And we better uh, help them to see Jesus. We better be so connected to the Lord that they see the Holy Spirit filling us, overflowing in us, and that they see that God, a God that can transform their lives. Sadly today, if the world looked to the Southern Baptist Convention, they'd see a group of people that, 
that are functioning much like the world in many ways. How we treat people, the things that we tweet, the things that we share, the things that we say. Very carnal, very worldly, even ungodly. And I will tell you, it's hindering the work of the gospel. We want them to see Jesus. Years ago, uh, the Lord gave me the privilege of pastoring a church in the North Atlanta area, North Atlanta suburb. Alpharetta is the community. The church is a wonderful church and uh, a very strong fellowship, loving fellowship, loved to, uh, to dive deeper into the word, loved to, to serve in many capacities, but they were limited in their impact of the community. They, they were not known in the city where they had been for over 100 years. And as they pursued and carried myself, as we came there to serve and to lead and to partner with them, and they were saying, we, we've got to reach our city. Now, that's a really enticing thing to hear as a candidate to come, to come be a pastor of a church. And so we felt strongly God calling us there, and we went there. And so one of the first things that we participated in or involved ourselves in was to pull our staff away and our church leadership to begin to pray about what does God want us to do? How does God want us to engage Alpharetta and Milton and uh, Johns Creek and, and, and the community there, Roswell, all these cities that were all around us? How does God want us to reach North Atlanta with the gospel? And so we came out with a, uh, an initiative, a three-year initiative. It's, it's, it just shows you how strategic we are. We called it IMPACT. That's, that's, that's it, because we wanted to have an impact. And we said, pray, serve, tell. And so we literally spent a year in developing a strategy of how our church is going to be praying for our community for a year. And every month, there was a different aspect of what we're going to be praying and how we're going to be praying. One month, we were praying for all the schools, elementary, uh, middle school, and high schools. One month, we're praying for fire stations and police and every employee by name of the city of Alpharetta. And on and on this went. And then in April, we prayer walked every street in Alpharetta. And we trained our folks in praying, as you're walking, you're going to see things that you don't see when you're driving 50 miles an hour. And when you're praying, the Spirit of God is going to begin to speak to you and show you things about our city that we as a church need to be involved in. And we want you to come back and talk to us about those areas of our city and one afternoon, actually at the evening, Miss Paula on a Wednesday night came to me. Miss Paula was a school teacher. She said, uh, Pastor, I've been prayer walking and I believe God wants us to do something on Marietta Street. And I went, Miss Paula, that's awesome. Where in the world is Marietta Street? And she said, Well, it's about three miles, I mean, about three blocks from here. And I went, What? She said, Oh, yeah, just go down to Academy, cross Main Street, turn left at the next, at the next light, and then go a couple of blocks and there it is. There's Marietta Street. And I went, well, I'm going to go by there tomorrow. I'm going to go see Marietta Street. And so the next morning I got up, drove, as I was told by Miss Paula, and drove past Marietta Street, did an illegal U-turn. I could do that because I was the chaplain with the police department, okay? There are benefits. Did a, a U-turn and then turned into an alleyway that opened up to where there were dwelling places where I'd never seen before. I'd never seen this part with, within three blocks of my church. And there were so many families that were living, and they were all Hispanic, Latino families that were there. 
And I kept driving around praying, God, what do you want us to do here? What do you want us to do here? What do you want our church to do on Marietta Street? Seeing the need and telling your city to look at us. After several weeks of meeting with Miss Paula and several other of our church leaders, they came up with the idea that we need to start a tutoring ministry for the children on Marietta Street. I loved it. I said, let's do it. And so we canvassed that area, excuse me, we canvassed that area with flyers that were made up by a group of our, in our church. And uh, we had a, 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 already a strong presence of Latino families in our church, and they were helping us with this outreach, this ministry. And uh, we were going to send the bus on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock and pick up your children. We're going to be tutoring them for several hours. We're going to feed them dinner, and then they're going to be going to the different areas of ministry that would be appropriate for their age. What a great plan. And uh, the first day, we picked up two. The next week, we picked up three. Now, remember, we have a room filled with adults that are prepared to tutor these children, and each week, we're coming in with just a few, and then the next week, we picked up six, and then eight, ten. After a few months, the bus was full. The room was full. And what an amazing sight to, pe to see people just teaching these children and encouraging them, loving on them. I remember Richard Graham, 78 years old, down on one knee in front of a, about a seven-year-old young man saying, God's made you so special. God's got big plans for you. You need to learn this. After about three and a half months of doing this, I get a phone call on my cell. I answered it. And it started off with something that you don't ever want to hear. It started off with, are you the pastor at First Baptist Church, Alpharetta? Ooh, that's red flag number one, right? Red flag number two, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, our red flag number two is, are, is your church the church that's working with, that's the terminology she used, the kids on Marietta Street, well, that depends. If this is bad news, the Methodists are doing it. <laughs> That's literally what I said. I said, if it's good news, we're doing it. She said, oh, preacher, it's, it's good news. I said, okay. She said, I want you to know I'm the principal at their school. And the kids on Marietta Street are the talk of our school. She said, not just the administration and the teachers, even the students have seen what is happening with the kids on Marietta Street. Their behavior is better. They're treating others differently. Their grades are all going up. They're doing their homework. It's just an incredible thing. And then this is what she said, and preacher, whatever you're doing, please don't stop. See the need and get involved. And then the final thing I'll say very quickly is reach out in faith. Verse 6 and 7, Jesus said, I mean, Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Scripture goes on and says that immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, so he leaping up stood. What an incredible thing this is. This is Peter now stepping out in faith. It's always easier to see the need than it is to get involved. And it's always, listen, easier to just not step out in faith. 
stepping out in faith, it puts us in a position where we are completely dependent upon the Lord and his empowerment. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 14, verse 12. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, listen to this, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What did Peter say? In the name of, I mean, don't you know Peter remembered this? In the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. Now, that's words of faith, but I want you to see how Peter's words and his actions lined up perfectly. And this is so important for ministry leaders. We can talk it, but if we're not living it, it will be like a gong. You need to be sharing with your people. This is what God is doing in my life right now. Let me tell you what he did this past week, not 10 years ago. The words, get up and walk, were matched by the actions where Peter literally reached his hand down to help him up. Peter knew this was going to happen. Pastor, you're going to have to live by faith. Ministry leaders, there's going to be times in which God's going to show you some things. He's going to, listen, he's going to push you out of comfort zones, and he's going to say, step up, speak up, and believe me. And finally, I will tell you this, never take credit for anything. <laughs> Verse 11 and 12, this is what it says. Now, as the lame man, after he's being healed, after he was healed, who was called, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? For why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? You know what Peter and John are saying? We didn't do this. Jesus did it. Listen, as you lead a ministry, there are going to be people that are going to be saying, you're great, you're wonderful, I loved your sermon. And we're not talking about some kind of a fake piety, oh, give it all. The no, I'm talking about genuine it's God who does it. You remember what Paul said in Corinthians? He, cho he chooses the base things, the weak things to confound the wise because God will share no glory with the flesh. Simply this, live a life so close to Jesus that he enables you to see the needs around you through his eyes. And then live a life so faithful that you're able to tell others, look at me, I will be willing to be your help. And then step out in faith. Ministry is the toughest job you'll ever love. In closing, let me tell you this. We gathered all the people from Marietta Street, all the families together for a celebration for their kids, kind of like a graduation celebration, a banquet. And uh, that night, through the aid of one of our members, his name was Bernardo Dennis, uh, I shared the gospel with all of the family there, all the families there. We had 18 moms and dads give their life to Christ.
the next Sunday, we launched a Latino ministry that grew. I can't tell you how many people we baptized off of, out of Marietta Street, but it was, it was just family after family after family that we were reaching. And then we used, and, and we led those families to reach out into other areas. It was incredible to see how God used them. Bernardo Dennis came to me after about three months and said, I think God is calling me to be a pastor. All I can tell you is faithfulness leads to more opportunities. See the need, get involved, step out in faith.